Listener Production. Hello, hello. Welcome to The Briefing. Antoinette Latouf with you here. On today's show, we're asking the question, does vigilantism ever work? But settle down before you reach for your pitchforks. You'll have to have a listen to Katrina Blower's fascinating look into mob justice. Katrina, you go deep on a 100-strong anti-crime group. Yeah, so this group has been going door-to-door in the central Queensland city of Rockhampton. It's now at over 100 members. They say it's the only answer to a growing youth crime problem and what they reckon isn't enough police action. So it does become very problematic. I mean, you're spending more time worrying about those vigilantes than you are about the criminals out there committing crime. Oh, gosh, on my bucket list is to perform a citizen arrest, so I can't (laughs) wait to check that out. That's our briefing today. But, of course, first off, we're going to take a look at the big news stories. It is Tuesday, the 16th of May. The federal government is paying out $133 million over PFAS contamination. So PFAS is a group of toxic heat-resistant chemicals that used to be used in firefighting foam. They're called forever chemicals because they just don't break down and they've contaminated the groundwater near Air Force bases. And residents from seven sites have been involved in this class action while there are around 30,000 claimants. Residents are calling the amount atrocious. So I guess if you break it down, $133 million with 30,000 claimants. Uh, Eleanor, our producer, and I have been running this number over and over again in our calculator. It works out at about four and a half thousand thousand bucks each a lot of people are trapped in that contamination and that's it, it's not much for the you know for the loss of the value of the land but it's even less for the loss of the value of your health so antoinette the, this settlement still needs to be cleared by a judge and it's been made without an admission of liability Look, this is really worrying, Katrina, because these so-called forever chemicals uh, accumulate in the body. They don't naturally degrade and they're actually linked to cancers, birth defects and diseases. And the sites, if you're wondering, are in Wagga Wagga and Richmond in New South Wales, Wodonga in Victoria, Darwin in the Northern Territory, Townsville in Queensland... Edinburgh in South Australia and Bullsbrook in Western Australia. And if you think PFAS sounds familiar, we actually recently did an episode on it uh, on Forever Chemicals found in makeup on April 21. So you can check that out if you're keen to hear more. A National Anti-Scam Centre is set to open in July. So this is part of an $86 million spend by the federal government and it's an attempt to stamp out online fraud. So the centre will report scams and distribute the information to banks and law enforcement and vulnerable communities. And the idea is, well, the whole plan is to change the way we deal with scams, uh, which is currently fleecing Aussies billions every year. There'll be a faster response to scam reports um, and experts from industry and law enforcement will act on scam trends. There'll also be something called a white list of approved phone numbers. So texts will be blocked unless they're from an authorised agency. I don't know about you, Katrina, but I received that um, that text, mum, I've lost my phone. You know, the, you know the one that went around <laughs> to everybody? Did you get that one? Oh yeah, I've got that and I've got so many others. My thing 
thing now, you know, and I'm probably not replying to legit phone calls and legit text messages because now I just don't reply to anything. I just block absolutely everything just on the assumption that it is a scam. But I'm really hoping that this is going to stop that kind of victim shaming that other people do, but that victims themselves feel and attack the behaviour rather than the the individuals who, who've been scammed. Um, the banks have also come together, including the big four, and said that they're going to do real-time reporting because most scams are through bank transfers. And so hopefully this, this new initiative mm. that the banks have collaborated on will mean they can shut down transfers in real time too. And hopefully it will make some of the banks a little more accountable as well because the investment scams are the most common types of scams. And at the moment, only around 5% of bank customers are actually being reimbursed. Um, a couple of other type of scams that most people perhaps don't realise are super popular is dating scams. A lot of older people, particularly women, get scammed um, online and you know believe they're falling in love with somebody and end up sending them money. So that's that's really sad. And, and hopefully when you say that that shame, we do away with a bit of that shame, that more people will come forward. Mm. Let's go over to Thailand now, where voters have delivered a stunning blow to the army-backed ruling government, so much so that analysts are calling it a political earthquake. What's all the moving and shaking, you might be thinking? Well, for the first time, Thailand's opposition parties have secured the largest number of votes in national elections. Today is a new day, and hopefully it's full of bright uh, sunshine of hope going forward. Bright Sunshine, the leader of the Move Forward Party, Peter Limjay Ron Rat there. He's invited six other opposition parties to form an alliance against the military-backed government that has ruled the country for nearly a decade. And there was such an appetite for change, Antoinette. The voter turnout was the highest ever recorded, 75.22%. Yeah, it's pretty significant. Um, but these numbers need to be confirmed, Katrina, before they could be pronounced as official. And that could happen within the next couple of months. But moving forward won't be as easy or catchy as the party's name because in order for any party to take power, they need to form a coalition. And this could lead to some unlikely alliances um, as candidates face an electoral system at the moment that's weighed quite heavily in favour of um, the military party. More historic election news, this time in Turkey. The election there actually is too close to call with the current president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, to go up against rival Kemal Kilcjarolu in a runoff. So Erdogan led the first round with 49.51% of the vote, but he needs at least 50%. So he just uh. fell short. And Kilcjarolu polled 448 So the second round of votes will go ahead later this month between the two to try and determine who the winner is. Yeah, Erdogan's been in power for 20 years now. He is seen as an ultra-conservative. He's also mates with Vladimir Putin. Uh, His rival was really hoping to capitalise on that younger vote, um, people who were really Mm. disillusioned with how the government came to the aid of earthquake victims and also weren't happy with high inflation. It got to 85% last year. But weirdly, um, they seem to have fallen just a bit short. And it's never too late and you're never too old to become a swimsuit model. (laughs) Hooray! (laughs) 
81-year-old celebrity chef Martha Stewart is stripped down to a plunging lycra one-piece to become the latest cover star of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. She says when she was asked to do it, she thought it'd be great to be the oldest person to ever be on the front cover. Um, She reckons that age is not the determining factor in terms of friendship or in terms of success, but what people do, how people think, how you act, that's what's important and not your age. I've checked it out, Antoinette. She looks Amazing. I mean, you know, I think she's been pretty open about having had a few tweaks done, but who cares? I love seeing positive aging, especially in what used to be like a pretty gross and leery magazine, um, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Yeah, I'm with you, Katrina. I mean, what a babe. I just want, I want all the recipes to her babeness. I think, I think it's awesome. <laughs> um, but I also want to see more women over the age of 50, um, being celebrated because like we live until our mid eighties, but we kind of disappear from popular culture a few decades before that. So yeah, I really hope that this is part of a, a broader shift. Absolutely. Okay. That's all from me. Katrina Blowers will now take a look at regular people who are taking justice into their own hands. In the last few weeks, there have been some extraordinary scenes in the central Queensland city of Rockhampton. The Queensland Premier and Police Commissioner have slammed the actions of a group of locals in Rockhampton. Dozens of people from an anti-crime group descended the homes of supposed offenders. Vigilante groups have patrolled the streets in Rockhampton despite demands from police to let them do their job. Indigenous leaders and police are really worried someone's going to get hurt or worse, get killed. But locals who are part of this vigilante group say they don't feel safe anymore and something has to be done. So can vigilantism ever be a solid option, particularly when it comes to tackling youth crime? Dr Terry Goldsworthy is an Associate Professor in Criminal Justice and Criminology. Dr Goldsworthy, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. First up, what rights do citizens have in Australia when it comes to taking the law into their own hands? Look, most states have uh, some form of citizen's arrest. In Queensland, that power is conferred under the criminal code. So it allows people to arrest someone who they think has or or is committing an offence. It also allows them to arrest someone who's committing a breach of the peace. The issues around that are, though, that as soon as you arrest them, uh, there's an obligation on you to immediately hand the person over to the police. Uh, But it does give people the power in emergent circumstances to make what we term a citizen's arrest to stop crime and bring someone to justice. What kind of um, force are you allowed to use when you're making that arrest? Yeah, look, it's like any arrest, the same as the police. When they make arrests, the use of force must be authorised, justified or excused under law. Um, And, you know, you do expose yourself by making a citizen's arrest to using too much force. We have had cases where uh, people have been charged with manslaughter uh, because the person they're restraining has passed away. Uh, you know, we've had people in Queensland engage in pursuits of stolen vehicles or vehicles they thought were stolen, which resulted in uh, the deaths of those being pursued or innocent bystanders. And those people have been charged with dangerous driving offences. So there is a, a lot of hidden danger in executing these powers, hence the reason they're only meant to be used in emergent circumstances. You know, the police have a use of force model, which uh, is a circle type diagram. Uh, and allows them to move from closed-hand tactics, negotiation to capskin spray to ultimately firearms. 
and anywhere in between. They're highly trained in the use of uh, those options. Um, they train regularly in terms of use of force. So the problem you have when you have a citizen doing that is whilst they won't have access to many of those accoutrements the police do, they're not trained in uh, the appropriate use of force. We've seen a lot of uh, issues around uh, lateral neck restraints up here. Uh, the police aren't using them anymore. And, you know, you may have a citizen who engages with a lateral neck restraint and results in some serious injury to someone. They may well find themselves a subject of criminal charges and uh, be a very expensive lesson and the possibility of doing substantial jail time. In regards to what's going on in, in Rocky at the moment and the rise of vigilantism in that particular city and youth crime generally, I mean, we hear a lot about youth crime in Queensland lately. It's really hit the news at a national level. How bad is the issue in Queensland? Is it a perception that things have gotten worse or is it reflected in the crime statistics? Yeah, no, it's certainly a reality. It's not a perception. Um, what we've seen in the latest Queensland Government annual crime report is that youth offending rose by 14%. Put that in perspective, if you look at the proportion of youth offenders in Queensland, uh, they used to make up 16% of all offenders. They now make up 18% of all offenders. But the real problem is when you look at things like robberies, unlawful use of motor vehicles, stolen vehicles and brake nanners, Youth offenders account for more than 50% of those offences. So they are massively overrepresented in those high-level property crimes and also violent crime. The other issue that bubbles along with that is uh, what people see as a revolving door of justice here that we have in Queensland for youth offenders. An example of that is uh, the Atkinson Report, which was a review of some government uh, initiatives done to combat youth crime last year. It looked at breaches of bail by youth offenders and it told us that youth offenders on bail, uh, 50 plus percent, I think it was 53% of them, go on to re-offend whilst on bail. 7% of youth offenders on bail go on and re-offend and commit an offence that either causes death or serious injury to someone. So that's, uh, I think, why you see a lot of frustration in the community. And if you put over the top of that last 12-month period, we've seen an increase in crime in Queensland in the crime rate by 7%. There was a 12% increase in the property crime rate and a staggering 45% increase in personal crime in Queensland. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen an increase that big in terms of the crime rate in one 12-month period. Yeah, you mentioned the community frustration there. I mean, it's really reached boiling point in Rockhampton. I can't recall a time in my career where I've seen the community come together in, in these numbers to go door to door and chase people down the street. Uh, as a former police officer yourself, community engagement is a good thing, but when does it become dangerous? Yeah, look, that's a good point. I mean, we do see community engagement in terms of fighting crime, solving crime, preventing crime, and uh, that's why we have things like Neighbourhood Watch, and that's what we're seeing here, where groups are taking upon themselves to commit uh, raving patrols in large groups. They're attending suspects, alleged suspects' houses. That's when it becomes problematic, and, you know, you then see the police policing the vigilantes. Uh, so you, you're draining police resources even more. We've seen some of them criminally charged with trespass up here in relation to some recent events. So it does become very problematic. I mean, you, you're spending more time worrying about those vigilantes than you are about the criminals out there committing crime. Yeah, there's already been some concern around cases of mistaken identity, haven't there? 
Well, that's right. And that comes back to, you know, the police uh, engage in very rigorous verification procedures for their intelligence in terms of uh, assigning uh, someone to an address or whatever else. So, I mean, what you're seeing here is basically word of mouth Facebook. And I really think, uh, you know, particularly in Rockhampton, where we've seen these issues over the last week or two, the commissioner needs to go up there. I think it's reached that level of uh, problematic uh, interaction with the community that the chief executive of the service needs to go up there and sit down in a community hall with them and find out what their issues are and tell them what she's going to do to address those issues. Because until that's done, people will successfully jump on social media and misrepresent or create uh, an environment that lends itself to vigilantism. It actually blows my mind that um, Katerina Carroll, the police commissioner in Queensland, hasn't done that yet, given the headlines that this has been making. I agree with you. I think that uh, having seen what was going on there, that the commissioner would probably have been up there on the weekend or last week and sorting it out. We've had uh, police in Townsville chased back to their police station and blockaded by stolen vehicles. I mean, I've never seen that uh, in Queensland. And it's interesting if you contrast it to the reaction to the bikies. So when we had the bikie brawl here on the Gold Coast in 2013, the reaction was instantaneous by the police and the government of the day. They put 150 police onto nothing but bikies. They introduced uh, quite harsh laws. I don't think achieved much, to be honest. But nonetheless, there, there was an active response to what was going on. Uh, and we had 900-plus bikies in Queensland. What we're talking about here is a juvenile cohort, which we call the Serious Repeat Offenders, uh, and they've grown to uh, about 17% of youth offenders now, and they commit 50% of our crime in terms of youth offending. There's about 400 of them, so there's actually half the number of bikies, yet we have seen no move by the government or the police commissioner to put 150 police into dealing specifically with these offenders, which is something that could be done. So I really think there needs to be a rethink on how they're approaching this. Things like ankle trackers, we were promised that ankle trackers would be coming out. The Atkinson Review again told us, uh, interestingly, that over the 12-month period, only three had been issued, not the 100 we were told, and that those three were at a cost of $11.5 million. Oh, wow. That's, that's some expensive ankle trackers. So the thing is, community workers and social workers say the youth crime issue is a complex one. It's not black and white, and sometimes the most effective strategies can take years to work. So how do you balance that need for, for cool heads when people just want to feel safe in their homes? Yeah, and that's quite true. Uh, there are multifactorial causations to serious youth offending. We need to talk about two things here. One is um, you have short-term offending and then you have long-term offending. And to address the long-term offending issues, that's where you do need appropriate supports for dealing with the fact that 80% of youth offenders have tried a substance, 38% of them have tried methamphetamine. They come from homes where there's dysfunctional domestic violence, they're not engaged with education, they don't have skills to obtain jobs. Those things are what you need to address to stop the long-term offending. Uh, and you need really uh, substantive and expensive programs that's going to cost a lot of money to get these kids uh, reformed uh, so that they can go out and be useful members of society and contribute. There will be a small cohort that you simply won't be able to get them to engage and rehabilitate. Um, that's just life. But, you know, in terms of short-term offending, so on one side you've got long-term, which is those therapeutic interventions in the long end that need to be done, 
short-term offending, you really need to take these kids out of uh, circulation as soon as you can to stop that short-term offending cycle. So when they're out there stealing cars, they're on ice, they're with their mates, they're committing offences of violence, they're not going to be in the mindset or the time frame to engage with the therapeutic response. What they will engage with is being arrested, charged and held in custody for their matters finalised. And once they're sentenced or there's some kind of outcome in terms of a punishment uh, regime, that is when you can put the therapeutic things in place. Uh, but as I said, they need to be long-term, as you said, and they, they're going to be expensive. These things don't come cheaply, so you need a commitment from government to deal with these issues properly. That was Dr Terry Goldsworthy, an Associate Professor in Criminal Justice and Criminology at Bond University. And in recent days, community leaders in Rockhampton have come together with Indigenous leaders and also with the uh, leaders of that vigilante group to hold a meeting. Cooler heads have prevailed in that meeting and they say they do need a whole of community approach. So time will tell whether they'll come together and, and come up with some options. But as you just heard, this issue is a lot more complex to solve and could take a really long time. Listener.